Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today we will hear from Artie Fleischer, a media consultant and contributor for Fox News. He was previously the White House press secretary under President George W. Bush from 2001 to 2003. Today he'll discuss the role the media is playing in pushing Americans apart and what no labels can do to bring us back together, especially as Washington debates a new COVID-19 relief deal. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us. We're thrilled to have such an accomplished guest speaker joining us today. Ari Fleischer is one of the most respected political commentators in America. He knows firsthand what it is like to be inside a new White House administration facing historic crises because he served under the George Bush, uh, President George Bush administration from 2001 to 2003, and that time encompassed the historic presidential recount, September 11th, two wars, and the anthrax attack. His book, Taking Heart, which is on the New York Times bestseller list, details his time in the White House. And currently, Ari runs a communications firm that helps corporations and sports organizations with their communication and media needs. He graduated from Middlebury College and lives in Westchester County, New York, with his wife and children. Ari, thank you so much for being here with us today, and we look forward to hearing your thoughts. Well, thanks, Martha. Thanks, Nancy. And frankly, thanks to all of you. What a huge turnout there is. And I um, took a look at the list of people who were part of No Labels. What an amazing group of people you are. And it's, it's self-evident you're not doing this for any reason other than your love of country and your belief in a way to guide the country. And I can just tell you, after having spent 21 years in Washington, I was a, I was a press secretary on the Hill through the 80s and 90s. Um, I was a communications director for the House Ways and Means Committee. I was Senator Pete Domenici's press secretary, the chairman of the budget committee, some of the most respectable, hardworking workhorses of Washington uh, before I went to the White House. I can just tell you how essential it is to have your voice in the debate. And frankly, I wish your voice was louder. I wish your power was greater. I have some ideas for how how you can have your power be greater, particularly at this time of the Biden administration. But I can just assure you, having been on the inside, the inside responds to voices. The louder the pressure groups are, the more effective the pressure groups are, the better the pressure groups are. And I use the word pressure in the old-fashioned sense of the First Amendment right to petition a government for redress. The better our country is. So you've got a mission ahead of you. But thank you to all of you for being on this call. Thank you for everything you've done in the private sector and lending your time now to the public sector. I wanna make three quick points and then throw this open for as many questions as possible. But number one, our institutions held throughout the Trump presidency, throughout the Obama presidency, throughout our history, through many challenges. It is really amazing what the framers designed, how well it holds up. And if you think about it, the, the election of President Trump in 16, that almost no experts saw coming, shocked everybody, which is in itself a problem where half the country is really not seen or understood very well. The first check and balance on President Trump was the midterm election. The House went from Republican to Democrat. That's powerful. In the wake of the attack, the riot on Capitol Hill, our institutions held. That very night, the House and Senate returned to do the people's business, Supreme Court, stayed steady, stayed strong. Our institutions are amazingly strong. And even throughout all the Trump years, when there were stories of martial law, stories of people urging the president to do X or do Y, there wasn't a snowball's chance in hell that the military was ever going to do any of what some of these stories on the fringes, frankly, were talking about. Not a chance. And this is what I mean about how strong our institutions are. One, one paradox about these institutions that I just, I love, for all the angst that the country has been through, for all the polarization of the last, frankly, 24 years, think about this. We are increasingly a polarized country, but at the same time, the presidency has never been more stable. 
And by that, I mean, we had three presidents in a row win back-to-back terms. Clinton won two terms back-to-back. George Bush won two terms back-to-back. Barack Obama won two terms back-to-back. 24 years, three presidents. The only other time in American history that happened was 1801 to 1825. Jefferson won two terms, Madison won two terms, and Monroe won two terms. In between Monroe and Clinton, we never had so much stability in the White House. Stability chosen by the people. So for all the angst, all the fretting, the polarization, the Washington isn't working, the people still restored remarkable stability to the presidency for those 24 years leading up to President Trump. So our institutions held. Number two, and this takes me to the work of No Labels, and it also takes me to the work of the Problem Solvers Caucus in Washington. This is your moment. You've had moments before, and this is your biggest one I submit to you. I think you had a big one with the um, stimulus package, the COVID relief package that essentially got developed by the problem solvers and no labels at the end of last year. They showed their strength. They demonstrated what they were willing to support. They united around a proposal, not opposition, but affirmation. They were for something. And when they stepped into the void as the no labels caucus, or as the problem solvers caucus for something, with specificity, they were able to change events and be successful. And that is where you stand right now in the Biden era. I can absolutely promise you that President Biden right now is deciding which way does he want to go. And he will be the only one to make this decision. It will be a remarkable reflection on who he indeed is. Is he going to go for what I would call the old Joe Biden of the Senate, who will try to work out bipartisan deals wherever he can, Or will he be swayed, especially in this first COVID package, by the voice of the progressives and the group that brought him here, the group that he danced with to get elected to the presidency in many ways? Which will it be? And having sat inside the Oval Office and heard good advice on both sides of issues, good advice on both sides of which way you should proceed, cut a deal or ram it through, ram it through, why don't you? It comes down to the president. It comes down to a unique decision that the, that the president of the United States has to make about what he wants his presidency to be known for. So many of you are decision makers. You've been in the business world. You've had issues presented to you. You know, at the end of the day, push comes to shove. You've got to decide. Is your company going this way? Is your company going that way? That's where Joe Biden is on deciding which way he wants to go. And my third point to you is there's a precedent for all this. And it's eerie how similar this precedent is to the beginning years of the Bush administration. I came in on January 20th, 2001. I was the press secretary on the Bush campaign, walked in the uh, White House on day one. We had a 50-50 Senate in 2001. Joe Biden has a 50-50 Senate in 2021. Republicans, the White House party, controlled the Senate in 2001 because Dick Cheney cast the tie-breaking vote. Kamala Harris casts it now. Party in power, at the tie-breaking vote in 2001. In the House of Representatives in 2001, it was controlled by the party that ran the White House, the Republicans, by seven votes, 220 to 213. In 2021, the House of Representatives, when they fill the three vacancies that are out there, is going to be controlled by the party in the White House by eight votes. It is almost to the vote identical. The margins we held in 2001 and the margins that Joe Biden holds in 2021. And here's what the parallel issue was in 2001 to the COVID relief package of 2021, which in so many ways will signify whether President Biden is going to forge bipartisan coalitions or pass on the 50-50. We were faced with the exact same thing. Bush ran on a $1.6 trillion tax cut. He got to Washington, 50-50 Senate, close margins in the House. Senator John Burrow of Louisiana was the Joe, Joe Manchin of his era. John Burrow, Democrat, Louisiana, thought the $1.6 trillion tax cut was too big. And he made that clear to everybody. He wanted a tax cut. He wanted a big tax cut. The 1.6 was too big. He said 1.2. That was Bro's number. George Bush's instructions to his entire White House staff, from legislative affairs to the vice president to me, was we don't negotiate in public. The number is 1.6. I ran on 1.6. The number is 1.6. It will stay 1.6 until I say it isn't. And he always knew at the very last moment when almost all the negotiating was done, 
he was going to compromise with John Burrell. I think he knew it right from the start. But he also knew if he came in at 1-6 and he said, all right, Burrell's at 1-2, let's go to 1-4. Now he'd be at 1-2 and 1-4, and he'd have to compromise again. I'd probably compromise again. So that's why he held out until the last legislative second. The Senate passed a $1.2 trillion tax cut. The House passed a $1.6 trillion tax cut. And then they met in the middle with a conference committee. And ultimately, what got passed, what got signed into law? A $1.35 trillion tax cut. Bush, having gone into the conference committee, endorsed the House's 1.6, opposed the Senate's 1.2, gave no inclination he'd ever support the Senate's 1.2. But as any good negotiator or business person will do, he knew what he was doing and what he wanted the end result to be. Last minute, he gave a signal to the conference committee, 135 is good enough. Grab it. 135 was the number. And ultimately, 28 Democrats in the House voted for the Bush tax cut. 12 Democratic senators voted for the Bush tax cut. It was overwhelmingly bipartisan. And that's the lesson of 2001 for 2021, if Joe Biden wants that to be the lesson. And that's where it'll be so interesting to see what he does. Um, I think he's legislatively wise right now to keep reconciliation on track. It gives him leverage. He should not give that up unless and until the last second. And if he can get the deal he wants from the bipartisan group that started with the 10 Republicans who met with him last night, that can grow into a bigger number and into more people if the Democrats want, if Joe Manchin wants. If Joe Manchin is how you say John Burrow in West Virginia, we're on to bipartisanship. If Manchin or Kristen Sinema or no other Democrat joins in, then we're on the path to partisanship and reconciliation everywhere. And that's why this first moment is such a big moment. So I urge you to put all your voices into that compromise. It can be done. There's a precedent. But you've got to reach Joe Biden one way or another through publicity, through the people you know. And that's where it all comes down to. So your effort is huge. It is so important. Keeping this country on a sensible track is always important because that's how our institutions hold, through people being sensible. So thank you for being the leading sensible people. And it's, it's really my pleasure to be with you and I'm happy to take your questions. Great, thank you for those comments. Our first question is from Larry Rosenberger. If you can uh, unmute yourself, Larry, go ahead. Uh, the question is, were you surprised how fragile our democracy was? It held, but it didn't look to me like it held by very much. And so my, then the second question is, do you have some ideas on how we can make our, more, our, our sturdier country for the country? Well, one, to my point about institutions held, our democracy held incredibly well. What didn't hold were the security forces around the Capitol, which is unforgivable. I mean, the failure to secure the Capitol with sufficient military strength, National Guard strength, is unforgivable. Now, I, frankly, I have no doubt that if in the summer, when there were the riots in Washington, D.C., if they didn't have sufficient force around the White House and a fence built around the White House, mobs take on their own thinking. It wouldn't have shocked me if the White House got occupied. And so this is the danger of mobs on both sides. And, and frankly, my approach on this, I really don't use the word white right wing mob or left-wing mob. I think people who engage in violence are so far off the fringe that I don't describe left or right because I think that's demeaning to people who are principled left, principled right. These people are wackadoodle nuts off the fringe to engage in violence, whether it's for one cause or another. So yes, I believe our democracy held. What can you do? This is the moment to reach, in my opinion, a few key centrist Democrats in the Senate and say, you've got to get on board with a bipartisan compromise on COVID. And I have no clue, policy-wise, substantive-wise, if the right number for America is 1.9 or if it's 600 billion or whatever it is in between. And I don't think anybody in Congress knows either. The reason you pick a number in Congress is to make the other side look cheap or look expensive. And then you beat them up politically because they're not the right number. But what's vital is that the politicians understand how to build a center, that they understand how to compromise again, which is the essence of legislating again. What I think has gotten lost in the last 15 to 20 years 
is the ability of legislators to legislate. They've gotten really good at getting booked onto Maddow or booked onto Hannity, but they're not so good at compromising and writing legislation. That's where you've got to reach Joe Manchin. That's where you've got to reach Cinema. That's where you've got to reach a couple of the Democrats. Get them on board with the Republican plan. Urge the 10 Republicans who you have relationships with who were meeting with the president last night to keep going. I'm sure they're willing to go up on their number if they would get a bunch of Democrats to go on board with them. Use every ounce of your connections. Get a center that can hold. Okay, thank you. Um, Our next question is from Neil Modell. Neil? First of all, I just want to thank you for who you are. I love listening to you. I I watch you any any chance I get. Um, I'd like better TV habits, Neil. Tell my wife, I'd like you to comment, you, know, you, you talked about the past. I'd like you to contrast that now with the impact of social media and the, the Frank Luntz was on a little while ago and he named three people on Fox that he felt still had, I'll use the term integrity, that were news people. Uh, I'm not sure that he, ended, he, he uh, said anybody from CNN. So I'd like you to talk about the integrity of the media and the impact of social media on our life? No, it's a great question. I'm, I'm actually writing a book about this. Um, I'm writing a book called Broken, and it's about the media in the era of Donald Trump and beyond. And I'm convinced that mostly because of technology, and just like in the 90s when Napster came along, and instead of buying a record album, we can now download the one song we wanted. The same thing because of technology has happened in politics. We can now download or watch just the news we want. And we don't hear the news that broadly shapes what other people think. Now, in the old days, when Reagan was president, you watched ABC, NBC, CBS. That was the only places to go to get your news. But they actually covered news important to all Americans. They hadn't started that balkanization of coverage yet. Technology changed and you could get your slice. Fox News is the one that went first, recognizing the media was largely liberal, uh, but it was nowhere near as balkanized as it is today. Fox broke out the conservative group. But, you know, 94% of New York Times readers are Democrats. Only 6% identify as Republican or lean Republican. Uh, MSNBC, I think, is 93% Democrat. Um, Fox News is, I think, 94% Republican. CNN is, I think, 79% Democrat in terms of viewership. So we've balkanized in terms of what we want to buy the stuff, pay attention to the stuff we want to hear. And it's made it tough. I think at the same time, the media's business model changed terribly. You, you really, you can't make money anymore through advertising in news, newspapers. So you're so dependent on your subscribers. And if the subscribers to the New York Times are 94% Democrat, the New York Times is going to have to be quite careful and guarded about how much news it gives that runs contrary to what the 94% of its readers want to hear. They don't want them to cancel those subscriptions that soared under President Trump. So the commercial model and technology has made the media balkanized. And that's why Fox is Fox, CNN, CNN, MSNBC is MSNBC. The other problem is simply ideological. I mean, the people who go into journalism for the most part are overwhelmingly Democratic voters and liberals. And there's numerous studies that have showed this. It's, and I don't think anything nefarious about it. It's just self-selection. More people go into different fields based on who they are. And so what it's meant for... The public is we all have to work so much harder just to know what the news is. And my way of doing it is I read a ton of things and I watch CNN in the morning and I watch Fox in the afternoon. I wish there was one place everybody could go to just get it straight. But that era is gone. Yeah, sounds like maybe we should uh, be watching the other people's news to balance that out a little bit. Um, The next question is from Doug Scrivener. Uh, Thank you. And uh, Ari, uh, thank you for your thoughtful and insightful comments and and just for the common sense you bring to issues of the day. Um, You know, the problem solver is no label sort of to the extent that um, it's it's more or less centrist in orientation. Both sides, members of the problem solvers caucus in particular, have to deal with the more extreme elements of their parties. Could you just talk about sort of the, the what, what does the future of the Republican Party look like, um, just given your, your background? And is, is, it, is it all about Trump? Is it deeper? How, how does that, that divide between the folks who are willing to compromise and the folks who aren't? 
Where does that go? How do? Great question. You know, I, I started on Capitol Hill as a press secretary to a New York congressman in 1983. And back in the 80s and throughout the 90s, the Republican fight in party was left-right. It was basically moderate Republican versus conservative Republican. It was an ideological fight. It's no longer an ideological fight. It's a outsider-insider fight. It's a populist versus establishment fight. And the way I hope it gets resolved is one, I very much like the idea of the Republicans increasingly becoming America's blue collar working class party. I was part of this group after the Romney uh, defeat that wrote, they called it the autopsy for the RNC and pushing the party to do more to appeal to blacks, Hispanics, grow the base of the party. America's demographics means Republicans have no choice. We never thought about, is there a different direction to expand the party? Trump came along and expanded it significantly in a blue collar working class direction with, 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 considerable success. But there was a flip side to it. He lost a huge number of college-educated, mostly suburban voters, especially women. I'm pushing the Republican Party. I'm in a lot of talks with a lot of Republicans about this. To have a populist party, an outsider party, that focuses its policies and its plans on blue-collar, working-class Americans, that stands for individual freedom, religious freedom, that stands up to China, and doesn't do crazy things that scare suburban voters away. And I think that's eminently possible, eminently doable. I mean, it, the first part of it being that outsider populist party, we have many people like that. And then what it takes, and this is where the no labels aura comes in, I wish we would just have people who would talk, lead in sensible ways. The problem is, Politics rewards, and especially the cable TV shows, they reward the person who bangs the table the loudest. That's how you get booked. You're sensible, you don't get booked. But in a presidential campaign, that can change. When people see reasonable leaders stand up, people who that inspire you. So that's what I'm looking for in the Republican Party, that outsider, populist candidate who doesn't do and say crazy things. And there's one other huge piece, too. Republicans must denounce white supremacy, which is not a high hurdle to get over. I mean, if you want to grow the party and make people think you care about them, I hate to put it in political terms because it's a moral issue. You should denounce white supremacy for moral grounds. But that also is necessary so people believe you care about them. Now, I will say President Trump did grow the party with Hispanics and blacks. I mean, it is one of the paradoxes that a president who spoke intemperately president who was accused of being racism, which, by the way, every Republican that I've ever known who ran for president has been accused of racism, um, Trump more so. But interesting that he grew the party 50 percent more black vote than Romney, three times percentage of black vote than John McCain for where Donald Trump in 2020. So growing the party remains essential as well. So that's my answer on the future of the Republican Party. Thank you. Um, next up, the question from Coventry Edwards Pitts. Thank you, Ari. This is fascinating. And, and I think, Doug, you kind of just asked my question, but I had, I'll, I'll take it, um, maybe an ancillary issue, which is these conspiracy theories and people who are prone to believing them. And just interested in your thoughts about what can be done and what, what could we or, or what we're trying to bring to the table do to help with that. You know, I'll go back to basics on it. The most important thing you can do about conspiracy theories and all the fringe elements that are harming our political system is to create a powerful center that holds, create a powerful center that wins. And that's why this COVID vote is so important. It's so much bigger than COVID. Because if they end up at a number like one, two or one, three, and it was and it gets 60 votes in the Senate, it means we're starting on that bipartisan path that the old days of compromise are back and it can work. But if we get one nine on a 50-50 vote, then what's the point of being in the center? You, you, you didn't win. You didn't win from the start. President Biden's proved he doesn't need Republicans. Maybe he will on some future issue someday, but the path is already set that you can win 50-50. So if you can win 50-50, win. This first vote is so much bigger than COVID. If there is a powerful center that can start to flex its muscles, it gets a win on COVID, and then they start to feel empowered to come out and talk about the conspiracy theories and 
Did Trump win the election? No, he didn't win. He lost, which, by the way, I'm proud to say to you on December 7th, that Saturday when Fox News and everybody else called the race for Joe Biden, I was on Fox as the results were coming in. And I said live on Fox that I'm an American before I'm a Republican. And congratulations to President-elect Biden. It's not hard. So you just have to create momentum. And that's your role. That is no labels role. You've got to get an early first win so people think you have momentum. If you can't get it on this one, then I'm afraid people in the center who want to speak out and criticize the conspiracy theorists, they just stay quiet because they just figure it's too hard to be in the center. So why take a chance? I will say this too. I I tweeted the other day, I've been criticizing Marjorie Taylor Greene for quite a while uh, as part of a group that opposed her in her primary. Uh, We obviously lost. But I I, I think I called her a wackadoodle, which is about as harsh a word as I use. But I called her a wackadoodle for some of these theories of hers. And then I also said she should not get expelled from Congress. I mean, I hope we've all learned the lesson that Congress should not be in the business of overturning elections. Sovereignty rests with the people. And if our institutions are to hold, the remedy is in two years to beat her. That's how you do it. You beat her. And so hopefully a Republican primary candidate comes along who can beat her. Um, But anyway, um, I do my part on these conspiracy theories, but it's easy for me. I'm just a commentator. I don't have to get elected. All right. Our next question is from Fred Zeidman. Fred, if you unmute yourself. I was going to say, that's the first time, Fred, you've ever been mute. That's right. <laughs> Good to see you, Fred. See, they know. Always, Ari. Always. You know, you and I probably had this conversation the first time when, when the committee was working a number of years ago. Uh, the committee com- came out with all the recommendations. Uh, it came out with uh, how we were going to spend the money to broaden the tent. And what's the first thing when the money got sent out? What did we, Republican side of this, do? They gave it all to the evangelicals. I don't know if you remember that conversation when we were all sitting in a meeting. Oh, we sent this money out. And I said, and I said, Ari, ask, well, Florence Shapiro. I don't think Florence is on this. All the money got spent in Collins County on the evangelical vote. Every time we talk about Extending Are you the, talking about RNC money? Yeah. Well, no, I don't think it was RNC. I guess it was RNC money that, that uh, well, no, when you had the commission and the RNC, I decided, you know, how did we lose and what we were going to do. Yeah. All right. So the problem is, as long as you, it, 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 I mean, t- I'm sorry. You see how, how you intimidate me, Ari? I'm, you now have me. We are so divided right now that the attempt to accomplish what you said, which is 100% uh, uh, correct, could very well divide the party. Uh, I'm not sure uh, you know, if, if, if uh, uh, how we get the ultra-conservative wing or the Trumpers, for lack of a better word, to ever buy into this. I mean, you've seen what's happened even in the last couple of weeks. Uh, they've uh, threatened to, uh, they've certainly threatened uh, the uh, uh, no labels Republicans. Uh, they've threatened to primary every Republican candidate who doesn't buy in, uh, who's not drinking the Trump Kool-Aid. And so uh, what you're saying is uh, perfectly correct, but is it going to end up creating a third party? Is it going to force no labels Republicans into the Democratic Party if, in fact, the right wing is strong enough uh, uh, to maintain influence and control on the uh, on the Republican Party, and Got if it. Donald Trump continues to try and exert influence. Got it. Um, well, first, just in terms of the RNC, and I'm not part of the RNC spending decisions. But the RNC did, after that autopsy come out, invest a huge amount of money in urban areas to um, win more of the black vote and Hispanic vote. And that did lead to quite some success. Uh, Republicans still have to do a lot better, but compared to where Republicans have been in many of the past years, it did work. Uh, Evangelicals will always be a big base of the Republican Party. But the split in the party, the split is real, obviously. 
it's not a split of the very conservative versus others. It's the outsider populace, and are you outsider enough? That's the split. And this is where, if I had to write the ideal script for Republicans, and this is a bipartisan group, so I'm just going to give you my perspective as Republicans, as a Republican. But if I wrote the script for Republicans, the best way forward is a 2022 where Republicans do well in the House, do well in the Senate. It's a mid-course correction, the way history almost always has been for first-term presidents. So President Biden is not very popular in that sense. He's lost the House, lost the Senate. And then it comes down to the character of whoever emerges as a Republican nominee along the way in 2023 into 2024. It comes through leadership. If you have that outsider, populist leader who denounces white supremacy, campaigns and runs in a way that has an appeal to the suburbs and college-educated people, mostly because they just don't do crazy things and say crazy things. And it's almost a sister-soldier moment. They're the ones who tell Marjorie Taylor Greene, no, you're wrong. And it resonates well. And they win a primary as a result of it. That's the path back for Republicans. The risk, of course, is you take on a Marjorie Taylor Greene and you lose. But you know what, Fred? If that's the case, the Republican Party is going to split. It'll be the best thing that ever happened to Democrats. Democrats are going to win for a while. And then I go back to my first point about our institutions hold. Politics is a pendulum. I remember in the 80s, poor Democrats had to have 12 years of Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. They must have thought it was misery. I thought it was wonderful. But it's a it's a pendulum in American politics. If Republicans split that badly, then the Democrat splits are going to emerge. They're going to emerge over time now between the socialist wing inside the Democratic Party and the liberal wing inside the Democratic Party. Democrats have ideological splits. Republicans have insider-outsider splits. My fear, I guess I haven't been uh, muted yet, but Ari, my, my fear, and it's just what you said, is that you know the, the demographic of the Republican primary voter. And if, in fact, anyone that does what you said what you are saying right now, which they should do, gets primaried by somebody who is still drinking the Kool-Aid. And you know that the solid base in the primaries are the outsiders, not the insiders, or whichever way it is. Yes and no. That's the only way we could blow the entire thing. Yes and no. And here's why I say that is if you're an incumbent senator or congressman, if you can't defeat one-on-one an outsider populist rebellion against you, you probably are doing something wrong. And where have you been for the last two years, four years, six years, building your relationships with your constituents? Are you that weak that some outsider who talks radical populist life can come out and just beat you? I'm sorry. That's too timid. You should be able to win. You know, I think so many people are scared and they shouldn't be. Now, as for a presidential primary, um, you know, and I opposed President Trump, Donald Trump in 2016, in the primary, I voted for somebody else. I ended up not voting for Donald Trump in 2016 because I just couldn't bring myself to. And then ultimately, I did vote for him in 2020 because of the results of what he achieved in office, not because of his personality. But I say that to you because in 2016, the only reason Donald Trump won was it was a multi-candidate field. Donald Trump kept winning the early primaries with 30%, 35%, and then the rest split. If Republicans going into 19 and 20 have a multi-candidate field, it is then possible we'll have a similar dynamic depending on who the you know, vociferous outsider is. Will Republicans have learned that lesson and will people start to drop out faster so it becomes a one-on-one race? I think that's possible. So bear that in mind as you look at the future. All right, thank you. Bill Galston. Bill? Ari, first, thanks a lot for your presentation. And I loved your analogy between 2001 and 2021. Uh, let me just ask you a very simple question. Uh, John Bro's counteroffer came in at 75% of what the president was asking for. Suppose that it had come in at 30%. Would there have been an agreement? I don't think a 30% could have passed the Senate. See, what Bro got his strength from was his 1.2 passed the Senate. He was able to build his own coalition, and that gave him strength. If he came in that low, 30%, well, let me put it this way. If he came in at 30% and that passed the Senate, then yes. I don't think 30% would have passed the Senate, though. Well, 
then let me just ask you a quick follow-up. I chose the 30% figure, of course, because that's what the 10 Senate Republicans right. proposed to, uh, to Joe Biden. Right. Uh, I'm interested in your assessment. What would pass the Senate in your judgment? Yeah, I would just love to see it because I want to see if we can restore some sense of bipartisanship in Washington. And when the we totally agree. Is, then one party rule is just so dicey. I, I would like to see it at one zero, one one, one two. And honestly, Bill, you know, there are tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions, unspent from the previous, was it now four COVID agreements that have been signed into law? Um, five? No, not signed into law. I think four have been signed into law. So do we really need 1.9? But this is where I have no faith in Congress. I have no faith that anybody in there does the due diligence that you all do in, in your private sector businesses to know what an accurate good number is to guide good decision making. It's not how it works in Washington. Um, Yolanda, do you want to ask your question now? Sure. Um, I loved the analogy or the, the history that you gave us about 1920, I guess, or 20 years ago. And I just wonder today, I mean, do the leaders really even want to find a middle? Are they interested or do they love this new business model where two majority leaders just run everything? <laughs> Well, majority leaders have run everything for a long time. Um, well, not the way they are now, it seems. But Yeah. Look, I, if I were Joe Biden, I could pass something 50-50 on reconciliation. I mean, it's really powerful. Why shouldn't I get 1.9? I've got the majority. I mean, that's, there are good principles behind that. And politics is about numbers. Do you have the votes? So that's why Joe Manchin, and as I was saying, those, those are the key decision makers here who can either tell Joe Biden, you must compromise, or Biden can say, no, I can get away with this. I think there's a reason people are dropping out of the Senate and good people aren't running for the Senate anymore. It used to be a wonderful place to be because you actually could legislate. Pete Domenici loved it. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. And I learned to love it from watching Pete Domenici's love. I mean, he was a maneuverer. He knew everything procedure about the budget resolution and reconciliation and the bird rule. And frankly, it was really enjoyable for me as a staffer to have to learn these substantive things. And the same thing with ways and means. I loved learning substance. Back then, you, there was no Hannity and Combs, or certainly no Sean Hannity. There was Hannity and Combs that had just started. No, it was. When I worked for Domenici in the 80s and 90s, Fox hadn't even been born yet, neither at MSNBC. So the reward really was getting business done. Right. Now the reward is going on TV. Right. But it takes me back. Win this first vote on a compromise, and it can start to create legislative compromising muscles that people have forgotten how to use. Yeah, and I don't know if they've forgotten or they simply don't want to anymore. That's my fear. Yeah. But that's your role. That's right. Come back to you. Yep, thank you, know, you. I hope everybody here can pick up the phone. And, and call Collins and say, keep going. What you're doing is so essential. Call the Democrats. Say, get on board, even if the number's not 600. You know, I don't care. Make the number 900. But just get on board to make a center whole. This is your first test. This is the key test. If they don't need you now, I don't really think they're going to need you six months from now. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, next up, we have Sally DeWitt. Yes, um you keep talking about that you're saying that the Democrats must compromise. What about the Republicans who have failed to compromise for the last 10 years under the leadership of McConnell? Well, on the COVID legislation, that's exactly what I was saying, go up from 600. I mean, you, you've got Joe Biden starting in at 1-9. You've got 10 Republicans saying 600. And as I said to Bill, you know, I personally would like to see it end up somewhere at 1, 1, 1, 1, 2, right there. So inherent in that is, is compromise. But Look, it's been compromise has turned into a dirty word in, in both parties. And that's where I think no labels and, and and has the power now to see if you can make a dirty word a clean word. Okay, history for the last 10 years have shown you that it's not there. I agree with the no I'm in terms of we do need bipartisanship, but I, I guess I'm a little concerned about there's a continuous the Democrats must compromise. And I would hope that there would be an equal amount of Republicans, you need to compromise and come to the table with some real stuff. And I agree with that. I mean, that's why I was saying before, the power that you have is specificity and proposals. And there was a compromise last 
uh, December on spending on COVID. But you know what stops a compromise is margins. When you have 59 Democrats in the Senate in 2009, you don't need to compromise. When you have 55 Republicans in the Senate, you don't need to compromise. When you've got 50-50, you need to compromise. That's a great point. Um, next up, we have Richard Davis. Hey, Richard. Uh, to some extent, my question really was just was just asked. I mean, in the in the sense that you, you presented this as a test of whether Biden, but to me, isn't it really a test of the Republicans? It's just as much because, as Bill Galston said, a thirty percent offer is not a very meaningful open, even an opening gambit, in my view. And so, isn't the real burden? just as much on the Republicans to show that they are actually interested in a solution as opposed to just making it seem that they're willing to offer something. It's always got to be both, but I'll tell you, I've worked in the White House and worked on Capitol Hill. Leadership and the examples always come from the president. Well, leadership, but but you, te- you need two to t- tangle. I've done a yeah. lot of negotiating, and the key is you've got to give the other side something that they can have that A, they can't afford not to take because it really is good enough. You got to give them yeah. something. And the, ch- and the challenge is we have to see, I think, whether the Republicans are really prepared to give something that makes it a real decision for, the, for Biden as opposed to no decision. I agree with that. I mean, it's the definition of compromise. Both sides have to give something. Our next question is from Carla O'Dell. Hi, Ari. Uh, I agree with all of your messaging and especially, you know, game theory and politics would both say that you're right on the initial out of the gate. Biden and the Republicans need to compromise. My question, because your messaging has always been so good, is what kind of advice would you give the Biden administration on messaging about the transition to green energy? I mean, after we get beyond the the emergency situation we're in now. I'll tell you that I think I'm sitting here in Houston, Texas, as you can probably tell my accent, and the messaging has been pretty clunky so far and unnecessarily alarming to people who worry about their jobs. So what advice would you give the Biden administration on the necessary transition to clean energy? Uh, It's advice that they won't listen to or want to hear. This is one of those divides that I don't see being bridged. Another reason I think there's good reason to compromise both sides on the COVID number, because there will be no compromise on green energy. There won't be. Um, it's too big an issue. And it, it is such an overwhelming, powerful issue inside the Democratic Party, particularly for young voters, that they don't have enough room to compromise on it. It would hurt their base too much to compromise on it. So it won't be done legislatively because the votes just aren't there in either the House or the Senate. The Democrats could not muster the votes for anything that could appeal to the Democratic base. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be done through regulatory action throughout all the federal agencies. And this is where you're going to see Republicans have the opportunity to become even more the champion of blue collar workers. Mm-hmm. Because this transition is not going to be I got laid off at Keystone this morning and I'm making solar panels this afternoon. That's right. I got laid off at Keystone this morning. I got laid off at the liquid nat- liquefied natural gas plant uh, this morning. You name energy industries now that are going to be, through regulation, harmed in their ability to produce fossil fuels with pollute, hence mm-hmm. the imperative to mm-hmm. stop them from polluting or contributing to global warming. And that transition is going to be brutal. It's going to be called unemployment, mm-hmm. which is why I think the likelihood is the historical pattern of 2022 will mean Republicans take the House, take the Senate, because unemployment's going to stay high. And my only thought is when Secretary Kerry talked last week about there's a better option, there are better jobs, make solar mirrors, make, uh, so, solar um, panels. panels. If the Biden administration can make a promise that everybody getting laid off will have a job making a solar panel that afternoon, that would go a long way. And that would put their money where their mouth is. But that's not reality. Transitions are difficult. And this is a gap between the two parties that I don't see being bridged. I don't think it'll be bridged by policy. And I think the regulation is correct. I think it's more a question of can you soften the blow? And can you talk about making that transition easier for people who are afraid of losing their homes? But I'll let you go, Ari. Good to see you. Thank you, Carla. Thank you. All right, let's go ahead then with Gene Bernstein. 
Hi, um, I'm curious to know if you have any sort of front runners for that type of Republican candidate that you're talking about from the outside who can start to attract more blue collar voters, number one. And if successful, what will happen to the traditional Republicans like the Wall Street Republicans and the finance people? I'll take the second part first. The finance people are already becoming Democrat. <laughs> I mean, I, I live in Westchester County, New York. My children go to school in Fairfield County, Connecticut. Uh, we're surrounded by Wall Street finance types. That area shifted 20 years ago, and it's shifted even more to Democrats, even in local races now. Small little towns and outlying suburbs that used to be Republican are all going Democrat. They've been Democrat in federal races for a while. I remember flying with President Bush and Marine One once. We were going to an event in uh, uh, Connecticut, and it was up in uh, central Connecticut. I think we, we landed probably at JFK, took Marine One, and we flew over the Gold Coast of Connecticut. And George Bush, son of Barbara Pierce, who grew up in Rye and went to Greenwich Country Day, we were looking down at the houses down there. And I grew up near there. And I, so I said to the president, those old big mansions down there, those are the Republicans are for you. And he said, are you crazy? All those people vote Democrat. They can't stand me. And that was the case 20 years ago. So that switch has already happened. It's increasingly happening. Um, I could point to salt taxes as another example where that policy uh, overwhelmingly benefits, as you know, uh, people who have a lot of mortgage interest and pay a lot of property taxes. That's not the Republican base much longer. The first part of your question, remind me what the first part was? Do you see any particular Republicans oh. now who might fit the bill of your description? I don't. And that shouldn't surprise you. I think three years out before presidential, nobody knows who's in the on-deck circle. I will say the only person who's caught my eye that I just think didn't said things that were interesting as a populist outsider was Senator Tom Cotton. You know, Senator Tom <laughs> Cotton came out against the vote in the Congress to um, not accept the presidential election. And he was right to take that stand. People were surprised he took that stand. I think he's been principled as he was this summer when he had that New York Times op-ed about sending the troops. He was right then. He was right about the Capitol, criticizing where were the troops to protect the Capitol. Uh, and now he's making the case withdraw the troops from the Capitol. We don't need them there anymore. So I, I think he's taken two principled stands that had really nothing to do with politics. That was just the right thing to do. That impressed me. Um, I think he's got some downsides as well, but I, 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 that's why I enjoy politics. Let these people emerge and let us let the voters judge. Ken DeAngelis, you're next. Ari, thanks for your insights and time today. You said at the outset, you mentioned that you thought you had some ideas on what we could do as an organization to be louder. Could you share some of those thoughts with us? Yeah, I can. I mean, this is your moment. This is my, my, my whole point to you is if, if you don't, if there's not a compromise right off the bat, setting the tone for the Biden administration, then what good is a group that advocates centrist, no label, bipartisan yeah. solutions? You start the game 0 and 1 as opposed yeah. to 1 and 0. And as we've talked about before, politicians are scared. If you start the game 0 and 1, they're going to stay scared. So my, I think it's a major lobbying effort. It is a lobbying effort to convince the no labels senators, the problem solver caucus, to get on board with a compromise. And that, that I mentioned earlier, it should be aimed at Susan Collins, Rob Portman, the 10 Republicans. Urge them, Bill, to have a higher number than 600. Your point about 30% is a valid point. Give them suggestions. I don't think the number really matters. It's the process. The number will end up what the number is. Yeah. But if they are convinced that there is power and merit, and it could just come from your backing, it could come from your good arguments, that the nation needs 1.1. We need to end up in the middle on this. It sends such a good signal after the attack on the Capitol, after the division of the Trump years, after the fights being so nasty, wouldn't it be wonderful to show that compromise works? Yeah. That's why this vote's so That's the message you need to impart to the problem solvers that you have. If I were speaking today to the Problem Solvers Caucus in Washington, to the House and to the Senate, I'd say you guys got to stop being chickens. You have to use your leverage, lose your clout, use your power. It is that close a margin. 
And if you're afraid to swing the margin because you don't want to antagonize leadership, then what good are you as a caucus? You'll never be good. And that's just the effective reality of how you count votes in Washington. If you can't get to 50 without a block, you start cut deals with the block. Yeah. So to the degree that you can put some real strength and spine into the problem solvers caucuses, yeah. you've got to do that too. Because what I fear in the end of the day is when leadership whips a vote, they fall in line. Thank you. You're here to that. Thank you. Um, Bill Galston's going to close now. Bill? Okay. Ari, you know, a three-part close. First of all, we are very grateful to you for this presentation. You have spoken to the heart of the challenge that we face as an organization right now uh, and the decisions that we have to make and more to the point, the elected officials that we're in constant dialogue with will have to make. And you spoke very clearly as to the nature of this moment. And I would say that most of us inside the organization absolutely agree with you that this is our moment. And seizing it, you know, if you're staring at leadership that's staring at you is, as, as you know, not so easy. But a bunch of people have to take a deep breath and take the leap uh, so that we can start out one and oh. Absolutely, and thank you for thank you for reinforcing that message and for giving us the analytical foundation for that message. Uh, point number two, point of sort of personal privilege or at least request. I've been doing a lot of thinking as a Democrat about what a blue collar Republican Party would look like and how it have to be changed. Changed, and I would love uh, to have a chance to talk with you about that uh, if, you're, if you're willing to engage on that subject. Uh, yeah. And I'll put on my Brookings hat and give you a scholarly response and not a partisan <laughs> response. Number three, this isn't addressed to you. This is addressed to everybody else on the call. Tomorrow, we are sending out a request for, for funds uh, for Joe Manchin and Susan Collins. We have reinforced the wisdom of our advice over the past few years uh, with material assistance for people who need protection uh, and who need encouragement, support, and thanks. And we're about to do it again, and we need your help. But more than that, we need you to reinforce our message with the, tens, with the 10 Republican senators who stepped up, the Democrats, Democratic senators who would have been part of that group, I believe, if there had been consultation in the Senate across party lines before the 10 Republicans went to the White House. And uh, we need you to tell them you know, that we appreciate what they're doing. We encourage them to reach out to the Democrats uh, who have been willing to cooperate with them in the very recent past. So that's your job. Oh, friends of no labels, and we can't do that for you. Uh, but as they say, thanks for listening. I think we're adjourned. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break on No Labels Podcast. 